Well, good morning. It's good to uh, see you all. Great to be here uh, with you. In fact, the, uh, the last time I was here, uh, it was to welcome you and we were downstairs in the heat. So it's great to come back and find out you really do have air conditioning here as well. Uh, very glad about that. And today we're going to uh, focus up for a little while on the theme of mission because this is your mission day. St Andrews has a uh, mission day coming up in two or three weeks' time. And uh, we'll be doing the same thing that you're doing today with our mission organisations and, uh, and thinking uh, specifically about how we as a church, how you as a church can sharpen yourself about, in thinking about mission so that you are being truly proactive stepping forward uh, for the year ahead and the years ahead as well. You know, it wasn't that long ago. I was actually just calculating. I was going to start by saying about 220 years ago, but I'll say about four Wendy's ago, um, 220 roughly, about four Wendy's ago, um, there was a great excitement in Europe um, about the discovery of the new worlds. Uh, thinking of, uh, well, certainly Africa, but thinking of uh, Asia, thinking of places like the Americas, Australia, a lot of excitement. Uh, modern navigation um, had uh, techniques had been developed, tools and instruments that enabled ships to sail the world more accurately. And so all some fantastic parts of the world were being discovered. And Christians were electrified by the tales that were coming back about these new civilizations, these new um, places and people all uh, around the world. And there was a lot of debate in the 1700s about um, what, who these people were um, and how they could be reached uh, with the good news of the gospel. If you have ever watched the, uh, the film the, um, called Mission... Uh, set in South America or Central America. Uh, there was a lot of debate in the uh, middle 1700s about, amongst some people, about whether these new people who were being discovered uh, by Europe were in fact humans who had a soul. Um, but by the late 1700s, the question was being asked, how can we reach out to these people with the gospel? By what means might these people be saved? And, and it was only about 200 years ago that, uh, and, and even less, in the early 1800s, that a whole flurry of missionary societies were formed. The London Missionary Society, uh, Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, uh, the Church Missionary Society, um, and uh, a whole range of other societies were formed to go about the task on behalf of Christians to preach the gospel in other parts of the world. And one of the amazing things in those early 1800s was that there were any number of appeals for people to go and take the good news of the gospel to foreign uh, places, to the word they used in those days was the heathen. We're we a bit uncomfortable by the term the heathen nowadays. But it was used not in a pejorative way. It was not meant to be used as an insult. But they were talking about these, these people groups that had been discovered. By what means might the heathen be saved? And in the early 1800s, 
people were going around doing a little bit like perhaps what I'm doing today, deputising to appeal to churches, to raise up young men specifically, but men and women, who might go and take the good news of the gospel to other parts of the world. And there was a big push for a thousand missionaries to be raised up in one particular circumstance arising out of Dr Livingstone's work in Africa. And the appeal was a thousand people to be raised up, young people to be raised up and to go. And more than a thousand stood up, ready to go. And they stood up and committed themselves to going with the knowledge that the survival rate for Westerners in Western Africa was about two years. And indeed, over, I think, about 1,200 people for that particular campaign to raise 1,000 people, about 1,200 people offered, and they were instructed to, sh to take their belongings in a crate approximately six foot long, two foot wide and two foot deep, all the more to be buried in because 80% of them were dead within two years of arriving in Africa. Uh, I worked uh, with Church Missionary Society for 15 years. Uh, don't, don't think I ever lost a missionary in 15 years. Had a few narrow escapes. But, you know, every narrow escape was usually met by frantic requests from CMS. What are you doing to protect the missionaries on the field? And we got the impression back uh, when I was working that just losing one missionary would be a disaster of public relations, as opposed to 200 years ago when 80% would be dead within two years. It's a very uh, challenging thing for us today to be here in Hong Kong and to know that the gospel has pretty much gone around the world and certainly it's come to Asia and certainly it's come to China and most certainly it's come to Hong Kong. But in other times, um, men and women came to places like Hong Kong with no expectation they'd ever go home um, and sometimes little expectation that they'd li live a long and happy life. Um, and so the world that we know today has been just profoundly impacted by Christians who over 2,000 years have been committed to the notion of mission, which is really a Latin term meaning to send. Probably apostolos or apostolic ministry would be more correct in Greek, apostolos being sent ones. But why is it that even today we sit here and we're interested in mission? And there's a whole range of, re of representations of mission organisations around the room. Why is it that Christians are, are roughly uniquely interested in this thing? Because there's very little else in the world that has anything quite like the Christian notion of mission except one, and I'll mention that in just a little while. But why is it that mission stands at the very heart of, of church life and Christian life, or should be? Why is it that that's the case? Well, we're going to look uh, from uh, Acts 11 and from Antioch to think a little bit about that and then to think about what is the impact 
And what is the, the consequence of, a, of Christians being committed to being like the church in Antioch and reaching out into the, uh, the world with the good news of the gospel? And uh, the, I know that last week you were thinking in Acts, and so we, we're carrying on in Acts this week. But basically, when we come to Acts 11, a lot of stuff has happened in the early chapters of Acts, which um, really uh, events seem to be a little bit like two or three hundred years ago. The world's just changed irreparably, and Christians in early Acts are struggling to get their head around what does this really mean for us and, and the gospel. And, uh, and in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. Before that, Jesus had actually said in Matthew 28, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And then the Holy Spirit came uh, and Jesus said, then again, I want you to go and to be my witnesses. Um, and then pretty much after that, the next major thing that happened was there was persecution. Stephen, a deacon, preached a sermon, his, probably his first major sermon, um, which got a rather negative response, ended up killing him. Um, I mean, I've preached bad sermons. Uh, probably he would say he's preached bad sermons as well. Um, but you may, I may bore you to death, uh, but rarely will you rise up and stone the preacher, uh, which is what they did to Stephen, because he offended them by what he had to say. But what we read in Acts chapter 8 is that as a result of Stephen's uh, sermon and as, a, and as a result of all that happened there... Um, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered, verse 1, throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so we have suddenly in Acts chapter 8, there's this kind of small M mission happening. Philip goes down to Samaria, to the Samaritans, who were kind of distant blood relatives on the side of the family that no one talked about. Um, they were despised. Um, and Philip goes down to the Samaritans and preaches the word, the preaches the gospel, and Samaritans are saved. News reaches the ears of the uh, apostles in Jerusalem and they send a deputation down to check it out. And they're amazed to find that Samaritans actually are capable of believing in Jesus. And so that kind of first mission had occurred. And then Philip goes further on and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, who's a God-fearer, but, I mean, he's even... He's about three steps removed. I mean, the Samaritans are one step removed from good Jewish stock who might believe in the Messiah. But Ethiopian eunuchs are around about three or four steps removed. I mean, he's, he's Ethiopian, he's a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer, so he's interested. He's a eunuch, and so that has all sorts of problems for the Jews in terms of um, him not being... Uh, I've lost for words for a second now. I'm going down a track. I wish I wasn't going. Um, <laughs> I've done this before. But he'd been mutilated as far as the Jews are concerned. He wasn't fit to enter the temple. And so therefore, religiously, it was all a bit, a bit confusing. And he becomes a, a Christian. And so the first mission, the outreach of the gospel, happens by accident. No one authorises Philip... He's just doing it off his own bat. And it's happened as a result of persecution. So it's hardly been strategic or planned or thought about. And then we find we come to Acts chapter 11 um, 
And, and in Acts uh, chapter 11, we read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution, we're coming back to this again, in connection with Stephen, travelled Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So the early Christians were still focused on mes- mes- be- focusing on preaching the gospel to Jews because they were the rightful heirs and successors uh, to, the, to the Jewish people who, for whom the Messiah would mean something. But then we read, uh, but some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Gentiles or Greeks as well. And so the first mission movement of the Christian church in the whole of history started when some young men who lived out of town, who were not living in the big cities, but they were from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went and decided they would suddenly preach the gospel to people who had no logical reason for wanting to even hear about the Messiah. They took that decision themselves without any authority, as young people will do. They figured, oh, we'll just go and do it. Um, And we're told news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And Antioch was the first international church in world history. And it was a church that was founded on the gospel. It started because men went there and preached Christ. And the Antiochians heard and believed. And they made this giant leap of faith into believing in Jesus who was Jewish. um, and, And culturally it would have been rather unusual for them. But they understood that he was more than Jewish. He was the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that church in Antioch, we're told as you go on and read chapter 11, that um, that church was founded on the gospel. Uh, It was there that Christians were first called Christians. So they obviously had a huge impact into the community. They weren't a holy huddle. These Christians in Antioch didn't keep a low profile and say, let's just sneak to church on Sunday morning and not tell anybody. They got called Christianoi, Christ people, because they proclaimed Christ, the Messiah. So they, they, they stood up straight away and said, we are going to have a profile in our community. Everybody will know that we are Christ people. And so they were first called Christians at Antioch and they changed the world. And out of a church that was founded on the gospel and Bible-based as well, because we're told that... Uh, because that the Lord's hand was with them, a great number of people believed um, and he, um, he taught. Barnabas was teaching but felt inadequate. So he scratched his head and thought, who can I get to help me? And he thought, well, I'll go and get Paul. He's not doing anything. Saul went and got him, brought him to, to Antioch um, and there for a whole year Barnabas and Saul taught great numbers of people. So they were a gospel-based church, Bible-based church, wanting to have an impact into the community. And that was the church that God said, these are the people who are now ready to be the first international missionary sending church in all of history. And it was from that that uh, Saul and Barnabas were sent at the instigation of the Holy Spirit to go out and to preach the gospel elsewhere. And so we'd have to say that right at the very beginning, mission was accidental. 
Jesus said, go and make disciples. But until God ejected them out of Jerusalem by persecution, and until God allowed that, that persecution scattered uh, group of people to therefore then begin to do their own thing, that God was able to use that so that Gentiles heard the gospel a group of Christians started to meet in Antioch. It was a great church founded on the preaching of the gospel and the building up of God's word. Christians who lived their life daily and impacted the community. Um, and God said that will be the group that will be the first missionary sending church. And Paul and Barnabas went out. And that's a short history of mission coming from the Bible. But there are a few more things that we can note. I think, therefore, then, looking from Antioch and going forward in mission, we can note a few things. And the first is that mission, over 2,000 years since then, mission has always been about making disciples. It sounds obvious, but it needs to be said. Mission is all about making disciples. Jesus says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to be obedient. Mission is all about preaching Christ. Again in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you are my witnesses. When these people went, what did they witness to? They witnessed to Christ, Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, and what he wanted others to do in response. Believe, be baptised, be made disciples, and be obedient and live out the word and live out their faith in Jesus Christ day by day. And you know, this has been the focus for 2,000 years. That mission is first and foremost making disciples. Now there are many things that go on in mission today. Education, medical advocacy, church building up, theological colleges, orphanages, all sorts of activities that go on. And these in themselves are all great activities that, that are, are part of the whole of the Christian outreach into the world. But we must have as our primary motivation in mission that we want to preach Christ. We want to proclaim Christ into people's lives. I had a man once who wrote to me when I was in CMS and there was a particular missionary who was going to do and I forget who it was and what they were doing but they were doing something that was not obvious that what they were doing was necessarily connected to mission. They weren't going to be a pastor or a, you know, a theological lecturer or a doctor or something. They were doing something which was somewhat obscure and this man wrote me a letter and he said, look, in the long run, I'm, I don't quite get what they're doing and why they're going. But he said, I'll pray for them every day and I'll support them financially if I know that whatever they're doing, he said, in their heart is beating a heart that desires to see people come and put their trust in Jesus. And he said, I don't know what they're doing. He said, but if they've got that heart, I'll support them in what they do. And I think it's uh, something we need to remember that when we talk about mission, there are many attendant ministries that are all part of the, the jewel of mission, but at the heart of all of them must be that those who are involved in it have a heart to see people putting their trust in Jesus Christ, uh, being made disciples of Jesus. 
It may be that in many instances in mission that the people who are actually in the activity may well be not able to do a lot to actively bring that about. I'll use an example, missionary doctor. Um, I've, I've had many missionary doctors who say to me, I've gone to Africa to be a doctor and I just don't get much opportunity to actually talk to people about Jesus. Most of the people I meet are unconscious um, or so sick that they don't want to talk. Um, And so although I've learnt the language, I spend most of my time in the operating (laughs) theatre or in the middle of the night delivering babies, you know, or something. And that's not a very good time to be talking about the gospel with people. Um, And so, yeah, often people who are involved in mission themselves may not specifically be able to articulate the gospel in the way that we think you know maybe most missionaries do but the important thing is that they're part of a greater and larger movement and so maybe christian hospitals or maybe opportunities where others around them are able to actually nurse and talk to people and so therefore the doctor will be part of a a larger mission activity i had a uh, one guy who was a dentist and he was in uh, dr congo they call it now it used to be zaire and he used to go on what he called preach and pull safaris or pull and preach i think he was the dentist and he'd take an evangelist with him he'd go to some village in zaire set up his um, portable dental um, surgery under in the shade of a tree a long queue of people waiting to get free medical treatment and while he pulled and drilled, the evangelist preached. And he said, that's the way we used to do it. I never said anything about the gospel. I just did dental work, but somebody else was preaching the gospel and no one was going to leave because they all wanted to get the free dental treatment. So they'd stand there and listen to the hour-long evangelistic sermons that this evangelist was doing. But what we need to understand is that at the end of the day, whatever the activity is we're involved in, it needs to be an activity which which resonates and beats with the heartbeat of the desire to see people being made disciples of Jesus Christ. One of my favourite verses is Acts chapter 8, verse 6. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. When the crowd saw Philip and the miraculous signs that he did, they paid close attention to what he said. And when it comes to mission, whatever the activities are that are, in, that are mission activities, we hope and pray that they will be focused on somewhere along the way the gospel being proclaimed and articulated so that there may be disciples made and people put their trust in Jesus. The second thing that I think that comes out of this passage in Acts chapter 11 um, is that mission has always been about making disciples here and there, here and there. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Sort of like, you know, Central, Kowloon, Sha Tin, Samaria. I don't really know where Samaria would be nowadays. 
Tinsern Y, New Territory, somewhere like that, you know, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. So the, the early Christians understood that they were to actually be Christians who were mission-minded where they were, but it had a ripple-out effect. It was uh, centrifugal. It actually spun out. The gospel spun out. And I think that that's really important because geographically and culturally, the early church crossed borders. It didn't just stay put. And we as churches today must have a, a mission vision that says we want to actually proclaim Christ and show his love here, but also there. And it's not enough just to say here, but it must be there as well. My, honest, my experience has been that I grew up in a church which was a church which was famous in Sydney for being a there church. They supported heaps of missionaries there. Um, but I have to say um, that the church was not as well known for mission here. And most of their energy was sp- and money was spent in sending missionaries out. Uh, but not so much a church that was looking to impact the local community in which it was operating. But the reverse can be true as well. There can be churches that are so focused on here that they have no there in their perspective. And we need to have both to be a balanced church. We need to be both geographically here and there, but I think also culturally here and there. Uh, What I mean by that is we'll minister to, to our own kind, whoever that might be, but we'll minister to other kinds as well, other cultures, other groups of people. Um, One of the realities is that in mission today, um, a lot of mission that gets done is not particularly focused on the other kind. It tends to be focused more on our kind. So we need to have both. Mission should always be here and there. A very old and wise Christian said to me once that uh, the light that shines furthest shines brightest at home the light that shines furthest shines brightest here and I think that's right for mission that we need to be a church that shines brightly into our community but also we're able to shine the 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 light of the gospel long distances as well I would think that for any church that means that we have both local mission initiatives but also over there overseas mission initiatives. Thirdly, mission has always been about making the most of the opportunities. Mission has always been, if you like, I'm going to use the word strategic. Mission has always been strategic. The first mission outreach was to send Paul and Barnabas out and they were sent forth in response to the Holy Spirit. But straight away we see that Paul and Barnabas thought to themselves, what is the smartest way to do mission and to proclaim the gospel into the Roman Empire of the time? And what they did was, in actual fact, quite counterintuitive. They went to the big cities, the regional cities in different places, Philippi, Corinth, eventually Rome, but all the big cities... They went to them, Ephesus. 
And you see, they recognise that it's the cities that are usually the centre of influence for the region around about. Not many cutting-edge artistic and cultural and political things happen out in the, in the boondocks, in the countryside. They tend to happen in the centres of population, the city. And so Paul and Barnabas were strategic about what they did. And they went to the big cities with the gospel. Uh, and indeed, since then, Christians have had, Christian churches have had a middling success with being strategic. Very often today, churches lack strategy because what they do is they tend to be more focused on being reactive to what is put in front of them so they can see it rather than being proactive and strategic in thinking about what are the needs that we have uh, in our world today. Uh, a verse that keeps on coming back to me um, in other contexts um, that, that reminds me of the importance um, of strategy is an obscure verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Um, but but a, an army was being amassed by David. And amongst all the groups of people who are joining up in the army, there's a group of men from Issachar who you've probably never heard of. The men from Issachar who we're told discerned the times and knew what to do. The men of Issachar who discerned the times and knew what to do. Many, many Christian churches today have not discerned the times as well as they ought and know what to do. A survey was done in a North American survey, but I'm absolutely sure it holds true for most of the world where mission takes place. But a survey was done about 20 years ago in North America and it estimated then as a result of the survey over 80% of North American missionary endeavour was being focused on already reached people groups. And less than 20% of North American mission was being focused on groups of people who had not yet heard the gospel. When you now today bring it up to date about five years ago, out of 100% of missionary endeavour in the West, largely Europe and America, if you say that the entire missionary endeavour equals 100%, less than 5% of missionary endeavour today is focused on Muslims. Less than 5%. There's a joke told about a man at night walking down the street and encountering another man who was bent over looking at the ground. And it looked rather strange. And so the man walking down the street said, excuse me, can I help you at all? And the man bending over said, oh, I dropped my car keys and I can't find them. Oh, he said, I'll help you look. So the other man looked as well. And after a while, he couldn't see it. The man walking by who helped look said, where did you drop them? The man said, oh, over there. Well, why are you looking here? Oh, there's a street light here. I can see better. You know, a lot of missionary endeavour that goes on in the world today is not focused on unreached people groups and not focused, say, on Muslims. You know why? Because it's hard. It's easier 
to do missionary activity amongst groups of people that we already know and we already like and, and hard missionary activity tends to be left to the real zealots. And so therefore, when it comes to Christian churches thinking about we want to be a balanced missionary church, you need to make sure that you are therefore then thinking the way the New Testament church of, of Antioch thought, a church that, that understood that mission is about proclaiming Christ. And this is a church that was not just, we are a word church. We preach the gospel and leave the rest to God. This was a church that influenced the community so that everyone knew they were Christians. And a historian, Rodney Stark, said that the overwhelmingly uh, positive impact of Christians in the Roman Empire of the time was that when the great plague struck the Roman Empire, it was Christians who tended to the sick and died themselves from infection because Romans were abandoning their own people to the streets for fear of getting the infection. And it was Christians who would pick them up and take them to their places and tend the sick and die alongside them. And so these early Christians in Antioch, these were Christians who were not just, we preach the word and we don't love the community. They loved their community. They were known as Christ people because they impacted in many, many ways. So I'm not just saying that strategy means that you just preach the word. All the attendant mission activities are important of showing love and the credibility of Christ. Love and mercy and justice and care. But in the midst of it all must be that also we preach and proclaim Christ. And the last thing I would say about the church in Antioch was it was a church that knew how to cooperate with others. It knew how to cooperate with the church in Jerusalem. The Antiochian Christians were international and Gentile Christians who most of them had never been to Jerusalem. They didn't know the, the Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And yet when there was a famine, they put their hand in their pocket, took up an offering and sent it to Jerusalem because they wanted to actually be connected with these Christians in this faraway place. And then they also cooperated because it was, it was that Christians ultimately were coming out of Jerusalem and other places and the church in Antioch was cooperating with the Macedonians and with others. They knew how to cooperate. And you know, churches, to be truly balanced in mission, we need to know the power of cooperation. And having been a mission executive, you know, I go around to churches in the years gone by, 15 years doing deputation uh, in churches, and a really good, healthy Local church will have usually a mission committee, usually constructed of people who are really keen about mission, you know, and there's Bessie, who's the, the Far Eastern Mission Society representative, and here's Bill, and he's the OMF Missionary Society person on the committee, and there's somebody else, and there, yeah, and these people look at me, I'm CMS, and they go, you know, opposition, Grr. You've come to take money away from my society. You know, you've come to preach about CMS. And you can almost feel the hostility sometimes in some of these mission people because they just wanted to defend their mission organisation. And I used to try and say, look, look, no, no, I've come to preach mission and we all benefit from it, okay? 
and in the long run it, it doesn't necessarily have to be I'm just so pro-CMS. But sometimes churches can be just a little bit feistily independent, you know. We do our own mission thing and we don't cooperate with anybody. And you look at the groups they're supporting, you think, yep. When I look at the groups they're supporting, I think to myself, reactive and not particularly strategic. And by not particularly strategic, I mean in 2012, worldwide, what are the great movements that are happening that need to be engaged with as Christians if we want to truly be proactive in taking the gospel forward, like the men of Issachar who discerned the times? You'd have to say, firstly, Christians around the world today, we've got to take Islam seriously. We need to have a positive program of Christian outreach into the Muslim world. Secondly, the world is rapidly urbanising. Christians have got to take seriously urban outreach. Now in Hong Kong, we are way ahead, you know, uh, and, and there are places in Australia where, you know, Three people crossing the street and bumping into each other as a crowd, you know. Um, and, and, and peak hour traffic just, you know, is like six cars on the road at the same time. There are parts of Australia, America and other parts of the world where they just don't get urban the way we get it here in Hong Kong. But nonetheless, Muslim, urban, and you'd have to say that students are a, a massive group of people who are strategically necessary that we reach out to them with the gospel around the world you would have to say china and india between them half the population of the world we've got to actually take seriously evangelism into both those great nations and then finally i would say secularism because secularism is just taking over the world um, and christians We've been infected with it so that we've got to actually be serious about how do you reach out to people who think that the chief end in life is to be wealthy and to have lots of toys. Um, and in many parts of the world, they're not very attentive to the whole global warming thing because they say, yeah, 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 the West, you've had your turn. It's now our time to have a turn to, to be acquisitive, acquire things. But if a church is to be strategic amongst all the missionary endeavours that they support and are involved with, I would think that Muslims and urban and student are three areas that strategically we ought to be prepared to be engaged in. I better stop now. Let me conclude by saying this church in Antioch did not know what they were doing. Uh, they knew what they were doing, but they didn't realise the impact it was going to have. And the church in Antioch in that very first century has changed the world so that we're sitting here today and we take it for granted that as an international church that we meet together in the way we do. But that first church of Antioch, Bible-based, proclaiming Christ, international, impacting the community, a here and there church that actually fostered strategy and wanted to reach out to the world, it's come to fruition so that we meet here this morning in Chartin. And I hope that for your church here at Chartin, that you will take seriously the need to think carefully about the way you do mission um, so that you will be able to be responsive 
to the great global shifts that are going on around the world. But there are two things I want to say at the very end that I hope above all else that you'll keep in your mind. And that is, firstly, that at the end of the day, as we are here today, what can we do? If you want to jump up now and I say I want everybody who's committed to mission to stand up now and to come down the front, you stand up and you come down the front, you say, what can I do? Well, what can you do? You can pray. Firstly, pray about the gospel going to the world. Be a praying church about the gospel to the world. Be a church that's aware and educated. These folk who have brought their stuff here today, I hope that you will look at it. Get on mailing lists and email lists and what have you. Be informed. Take an interest and be informed about what is going on. So you can pray and you can care. You can give. Support these ministries and the other ones as well. But then the final thing that I would say, which is my second point, is go. Is the going. Not everybody, as Wendy said, not everybody can go, but some can go. And, and it's appropriate that, that some will respond and others will pray and support from behind. And some of you in your 40s, your 50s and your 60s can still go and still respond and still do stuff. So it's not entirely crazy that even when you get to 55 or 60 and thinking about early retirement that you could decide to up and go somewhere. For the Lord, you could do that. But the second thing I want to say, I'm still on my second point, believe it or not, is that there are a whole bunch of younger people who are mobile with huge potential. I'm 61, which means on the potential and performance scale, I'm much more now on performance and I'm past easing out of performance into pre-retirement scale. You know, Potential scale is very low Okay, at 61. If you're young, you probably think at 61 there's no potential left in you at all. Disagree with that, but I will accept that there's not a lot of potential left in me. But if you're 20 or 25 or 30, there's a huge amount of potential left in you. And I would say to you, don't consider any other career in life until you are sure that you have explored the notion of full-time Christian ministry in a missionary endeavour of some sort or other. It's really easy to consider the full-time study work thing and then maybe mission on the side, maybe. But don't consider that until you've considered that. And parents, consider the greatest parenting success in life is that your kids come home and say, Mum and Dad, I've decided that when I finish university or now that I've got a job, I want to give it up and I want to go and serve in full-time stipendary ministry of some sort or another. And when you hear those words, rejoice and think, yes, I have supremely achieved my highest goal as a parent. My eldest daughter uh, came to us and said, I want to give up law and study in a Bible college. And I thought to myself, all those years of expense... Five years at university I supported her and she wants to give it up and go into ministry. And my daughter said one day, you know, Dad, I meet with a bunch of girls and we pray and talk about going into Bible college together. 
And she said, uh, I've poured my heart out in this group about the difficulties and challenges for me. And one day the group said to me, Steph, isn't your father a Christian minister? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, I decided I couldn't be honest anymore. And that was when I had to actually say, Steph, you have my full support in going forward. <laughs> Even though it's five years of law wasted, you can go ahead and do it. So I want to encourage you, parents, if you've got kids, and even if they're little ones right now, why not be praying that they would be raised up to be missionaries for the gospel? And whether they actually go and serve as a missionary, maybe like Wendy or like somebody else in this group, or whether they they stay in their career and do it in some other way, consider it all joy for the kingdom and the gospel that your children are found worthy to maybe... uh, live and work in this way for the future. So this morning I want to commend you for your mission day. Uh, Make the most of it. Get as much information as you can. And even if you in 10 years' time are still sitting here, a member of this church, be a, a member in 10 years' time that cares and prays and gives and supports others that go. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and loving kindness to us. Thank you especially that you've given us the precious jewel of the gospel. It's changed our life and now you call us to be faithful witnesses to take the jewel of the gospel forward into other people's lives as well. Lord, make us real people whose heart um, cries out for the misery and the dysfunction and the pain and the misunderstanding and the ignorance of the world. Lord, help us be people who care about our creation, our community, our climate, um, the direction in which politics is going, the direction in which society in Hong Kong is going. But Lord, make us Christians who understand that we have the words of eternal life and that will change people's lives and turn them around. And Lord, I pray that this church, Chartin Anglican Church, will be a church that indeed has a real commitment to proclaiming Christ, reaching out here and there, being a church that's both reactive to what you're doing and proactive and stepping out in faith and i pray lord that this will be a church which is a missionary sending church that we may consider it the highest honor of all to raise up godly men and women young and old and send them forward from this congregation and lord we pray that you will take and use us here at shouting anglican church to be like the antioch church that we will turn the world upside down We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.